it's Saturday the 14th of September. This is Monocle's House View. Today, the President of the European Commission leaves his post with a parting swipe at Britain. The British were told for more than 40 years that yes, they are in, but they don't want to share all the policies uh, which have been decided uh, by the European Union. The British, since the very beginning, were part-time Europeans. What we need are full-time uh, Europeans. We'll examine the state of the European Union at the end of Jean-Claude Juncker's term. Plus, what to expect from Westminster's party conferences this week. And chaos and confusion reigns in Paris as strike action brings the city to a halt. All that and the day's newspapers too. Monocle's House View starts now. Hello and welcome to your Weekend View. I'm Georgina Godwin and I'm joined today by two keen political watchers, the AFP's London Bureau Chief Florence Biederman and Vincent McAvinney, UK correspondent for Euronews. Welcome to you both. I think your coffees are on the way. Good. Did you ch- importantly, <laughs> it's did been you- a long week. <laughs> did you choose the cardamom or the cinnamon bun? I went cardamom this week. Yeah. Florence? I was not afraid of that, I didn't know. <gasps> shocking, oh. shocking. That you can have some of mine. I'm having the cardamom. <laughs> uh, now, we'll start today, well, where else? Here in London. Parliament has been emptied out. The parties are hard at work getting their messaging on point in readiness for their respective conferences. But can we expect to be hearing much outside of Brexit? Well, I mean, it's very difficult, isn't it, Vinny? Because basically with an election coming up, we presume in the next few weeks, uh, the parties are going to be wanting to be holding back some of their key messaging Mm. for their campaigns. And yes, of course, uh, party conference time is when you would traditionally push all that out. Yeah, I think we're going to see three very different conferences of the main parties. So the Lib Dems launched today down in Bournemouth. It goes on for a couple of days. I think we might see a couple of new Lib MMPs, possibly some of those who've lost the Tory whip or people currently sitting as an independent. They've, you know, really swelled their numbers recently by people coming across to them. Maybe some of those that left for Change UK might swap, as we've seen the likes of Luciana Berger and Shuka Amuna do. So I think for them, it's, it's a big relaunch and they have a very clear message. I think in the 2000s, the Lib Dems did so well because we all knew just one thing about them if we knew anything at all. They were against the Iraq war. Their numbers swelled to their highest in record uh, and they've really fallen away. But their message is so much clearer than Brexit, uh, sorry, than Labour on Brexit. They are just the party of Remain and they divide the Conservative vote in the South West. They can make good groundwork in Scotland. They can do quite well in London as well. They always have quite a good ground game and I think they are going to be really getting people out with that simple message, just keep it simple, we're the party of Remain, because Labour, who we'll see next week, are still totally divided. You know, Keir Starmer, when I was at Labour conference last year, was running rings around Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell, who kept trying to backslide from the new position, which was to have a second referendum. So we'll see a split there, because there's, you know, calls now that Labour, you know, should possibly follow what the Lib Dems are doing, and say, let's revoke Article 50 and and do it that way. And then, I mean, the Tories is going to be an absolute, you know, floor fight, I think, because you've got the problem that last year all of the main hall was empty because all of the party members who went a lot of them new members you know accusations of a bit of an insurgency they were all in the side venue seeing the likes of Boris Johnson of Jacob Rees-Mogg now those are going to be the people in the main halls with jobs in Boris's government and all the kind of more kind of centrist you know Cameronites are going to be on the fringes you know are they going to get audiences or not it's going to be a really fascinating conference. Florence what must the French think of us? 
We think it's such an incredible mess. But I think not only the French, you know, you see that from outside. I mean, it's it's fascinating. I mean, uh, uh, apart from, you know, that kind of very long political crisis in Italy, I have nothing that comes to my mind with such a, a long crisis. And... Uh, well, uh, we have a, a famous uh, TV presenter who was specialist in literature. He's quite con- well considered in France, Bernard Pivot. And he, he uh, suggested this week like to create a new word in the French vocabulary like uh, Brexit. Like when something is a real, real, real mess, you would say, oh, c'est vraiment un Brexit. Like, you know, to be part of the French language. <laughs> it's being turned into <laughs> So that's the way French people are, are, are looking. But again, not only the French. I mean, with what? With O, with kind of a... a, I mean, sometimes it's terrifying, you know. You you don't know what will happen the day after. Uh, Nobody has any idea of what will happen on the 31st of October, of what will happen at the European... So it's the first time a big democracy, so well organized, etc., has been in such a situation of complete uh, unpredictability. Mm. It it does feel like when you're a British person travelling now, I think it was a bit bit like being an American in the 2000s under George W. Bush, like when people hear your voice and figure out where you're from, they kind of do a, oh, like, you know, head (laughs) tilt to the side, oh, sorry, how you do, you know, oh, you still can use your passport, that's great, you know, that's kind of, we're now the sympathetic ones, you know, when we're we're out and about in the rest of the world, because I think the rest of the world just looks on and thinks, what are they doing? Well, we are going to get a broader world view uh, in around about half an hour's time, we're going to cross to our Zurich studio, uh, where our editor-in-chief Tyler Brule is standing by, and I know that he's got a very interesting guest there who's going to be looking through the international papers with us. But back to London and these party conferences coming up. And I guess, I suppose... What I want to know is, with this Liberal Democrat message, which so many of us do subscribe to, how relevant is that party? Why are they not sweeping all before them? Well, the first thing is it's about getting the message out. Uh, they've kind of played it slightly trickily uh, because David Cameron's book has started to come out. It's being serialised over the next couple of days. He's doing big TV interviews with ITV and BBC this week. And so they'll actually have to fight to get the headlines because David Cameron has spent three years in that shed that he bought for £25,000 writing this <laughs> tome. Shepherd's hut. Shepherd's hut. Yeah, writing this tome. Uh, and there was a famous incident where someone asked him, oh, how's it going about a year ago? And he said, oh, not great. I haven't even got to the part where Michael Gove's turned evil yet, um, which is apparently <laughs> something that he said. So it's taken him a long time. And now the Lib Dems are just going to have to fight to make sure their message is heard because they've got a new leader. But I really think they'll need these big reveals of they've got more MPs and a very clear message. Because I remember a few years ago when Tim Farron, who was a bit of a hapless leader of the party, you know, he had a conference that went almost entirely unnoticed. And I remember his coverage of his main speech being broken because Brangelina announced their divorce and he lost all the front pages <laughs> the next day because of that. Um, so they've got to fight to really get that message out this week. What's really interesting, though, is that there is a convention that when the party conferences are on, yeah. you don't actually interfere with the news agenda. Yeah. Now, Dominic Cummings, who is a... Um, a renegade. Yeah. A, a renegade. Because it's a gentleman's agreement and it's, uh, it's not anything written down. It's yeah. because all the parties, they can all mess with each other on this one and that's it's a big investment for these parties and a big cash cow actually for them so they all step back and let each other have their week uh well dominic cummings who is uh, boris johnson's main advisor uh, much disliked within westminster it would appear mm-hmm. has said no all bets are off they'll grab the headlines if they can well i mean yeah he's coming from this as you know they've been blocked twice from having a general election what we're in now is effectively a very long election campaign but without the normal safeguards of a British election of, you know, controls on uh, donations and 
and spending, uh, controls on, you know, on sort of political advertising and things like that, controls on, you know, Parliament's normally pro-rogue, so a government can't be seen to be using government advertising money to bolster their own policies. But because we aren't in an election, we're in this strange scenario where we're in this very long election now and the rules aren't the same. And I think, you know, it, we'll come to it in a minute, but David Cameron's book has some choice words about what Dominic Cummings is really like. And, and I think we can learn from David Cameron's experience of having sacked him effectively from uh, his government as an advisor. Mm. Uh, Florence, people say that they're bored of Brexit. And I wonder if that's true, because, I mean, people say they're bored of Trump, but Trump's stories always get the clicks, don't they? Well, they are bored of the way Brexit is uh, is dealt with with their political class, I think. But w- what you still feel is that people want Brexit to happen. Some people want to see an end to the story. So, uh, for political commentators, of course, it's kind of a, a great story, a great topic. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think yeah, they are bored uh, by the fact that it never happens, you know. But uh, still, um, I don't think it's uh, a. a Outside the UK, I don't think it's a big topic of conversation in every family, but here in this country, yes, it's kind of national obsession. So. Mm, mm. But not, and also a, a division, in fact. Like, the, like you hear just more and more families divided over this issue. You know, I've gone around the country for the last five years talking to people. Friendship groups are divided. You know, certain rules. Like, I, I have a rule where I won't talk about it. My rule is unless you pay me, I don't talk about it. <laughs> so otherwise, I just have friends constantly asking me about it. And you, 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 you know, and friends have got. I've got had friends that have leavers that have swapped back to remain. Uh, or I've had remainers who have gone to leave, and you know, p- p- different things tip people off. Uh, and it's been a really interesting journey to see how some people have changed their minds through these years. Some people have stayed strong, but it's really brought out different sides to a lot of public figures as well, and how you view them. You know, people this week Ringo Starr came out for Brexit and and stuff, and it makes you kind of reevaluate how you view these figures. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Still least favorite Beatle. <laughs> Um, Now, uh, we are going to look at David Cameron's book a little bit later on in the programme where we have a look through the newspapers because, of course, it's making all of the front pages. Uh, uh, And we're reporting that in our headlines. The other thing we're reporting is that Johnson says that there is the the basis, the very broad outline for a deal. And this was, of course, before he went off to meet Jean-Claude Juncker. Now, at the top of the programme, we heard a clip of Juncker, who's the outgoing president of the European Commission, calling the British part-time European. So, Vinny, that was part of an interview that he gave to your employer, Euronews. Now, he also rejected the idea that Brexit might be a failure of his presidency. Do you think it's fair to place some of the blame for Brexit on Juncker? I think it is. Yeah, I I think it is. I think, uh, you know, this exclusive interview that Euronews did, I think, you know, calling us part-time Europeans, you know... I partially grew up in Luxembourg. Luxembourg is a very different country to the United Kingdom. Luxembourg, you know, just the size of it, the population, the the history, you know, the the UK is a bit of an island mentality. But I don't think someone like Jean-Claude Juncker can really, could really grasp the British identity. He is, you know, Luxembourg is the most European, Eurocentric country you can be in, basically. Um, And so I don't think Jean-Claude Juncker understands that. And he's still kind of rages about the fact that he wasn't, you know, Cameron told him not to come here, not to campaign here. And he thinks that the European Union didn't do enough to correct things. And I think what he needs to understand is, yes, the European Union probably could have done a lot more fact-checking and put messages out that way. But if Jean-Claude Juncker thinks that, uh, you know, he was going to come to the UK and save it from Brexit, I mean, the man does not have a good sense of self-awareness. He would be the worst, you know, advocate for this. And I've seen people, I saw recently Guy Verhofstadt came uh, to campaign with the Lib Dems here. And very much British people are like, 
a foreign politician campaigning in our country. This would have been, you know, absolute dynamite for the Leave side. Mm. And especially, I'm afraid, you know, Jean-Claude Juncker's uh, public opinion in the UK is is quite low because of how he has behaved himself during this time. You know, we all know that, you know, he, you know, in public can... Um, at very awkward moments. <laughs> Florence, what do you think he means by being a part-time European? Yeah, he means something that is really, really very, very... No, I mean, uh, I, I wouldn't be that severe with him. Like, uh, yeah, w- when you are a European from the continent and you arrive in this country, which is what I did, like, it takes you some time to understand how insular it can be. So I agree. I mean, it's not that you understand what's going on immediately and it's really uh, a bit apart and the more I stay here and the more uh, I feel the difference but it's a fact that in this uh, uh, European uh, Union construction I mean uh, the British were always the one that refused political integration I mean they always took it as a market it was an an economic market for them it was never a kind of a political uh, uh, political alliance and it's very different uh, for for example French or German like after the war there was this idea let's re- rebuild etc and uh, let's say um, Britain, Great Britain was a bit apart from, from, from this movement you know reconciliation between French and German to me my generation it s- still means something and mm. Europe was based on that idea too it was never only economic so it had to be politics through economics but for, for Great Britain it was never the case which is why they were not in the euro which is why they were not in Schengen so which is why they didn't want to stay in this political union and that, that's why they are living I mean which somehow uh, uh, there is certain logic in it mm. so yes I mean in this sense they were part-time but of course you can also be part of a club who is large enough or who is open enough uh, to, to kind of be able to deal with that situation the problem is that the British people themselves didn't want to deal with it anymore mm. and then this is not uh, Junkers or whoever's responsibility in this. it was uh, a, a British choice yeah just to go, I mean there is you know the Americans have this thing American exceptionalism uh, you know, that they think that they're a great country and stuff like that. I think with Britain, you know, part of it is it's the kind of dying end of people that remember what it was like to have an empire and still think that Britain has this special place. And I think that they felt that Britain didn't have a special place in Europe because it was one voice of many, which it wasn't used to. Um, and I think part of that does feed into Brexit. I think that would have been very hard for the EU to break. But when it came to bread and butter issues, you know, there's a saying in politics, you've got to have the highfalutin and you've got to have the kitchen table. And just simple things to explain to Europeans as to why it was a good idea. You know, the only thing that they could come up with at the time is, oh, we've just scrapped roaming charges. And it's like, okay, that's great, but you need simpler things that mm-hmm. impact day-to-day life of people to know why this is a good idea, why the collective power of the European Union means that they are better in their lives. And I think for British people, it feels more remote than it does having like oh a single currency that works for us all and things I think there just needed to be a little bit of attention on things that helped people individually and also maybe because their politician didn't explain it very clearly they always used Europe as kind of a A bogeyman bogeyman, like oh it's and, and Boris Johnson was instrumental as a journalist in this kind he of attitude, you know. So, and turbocharged it, yeah. Uh, Floral, I'm very uh, concerned that you haven't yet had your bun. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think we should take a break because I can see that our hardworking researcher, Naomi, has just got back from our Monocle Cafe and she's got our coffees Great. and our buns with us. Uh, so uh, let's, uh, let's take a, a short break. When we come back, we'll be talking about the French strikes. Download the free Monocle 24 app today to tune in wherever in the world you happen to be. 
Whether you're catching up on the news on your daily commute, enjoying a little cultural nourishment during your morning run, or seeking some recipe inspiration around the kitchen table, the Monocle 24 app allows you to tune in live or download your favorite shows to enjoy later. Get started by downloading the Monocle 24 app today. Monocle 24, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. So let's jump on the Eurostar to Paris now. Assuming the trains are still running, the French capital was at a standstill yesterday with 10 of the city's 16 metro lines out of action. Workers are on strike against President Emmanuel Macron's planned pension reforms. Florence, this seems like quite a dramatic escalation. Well, it's a start. Whether there will be an escalation after that, I mean, uh, remains to be seen. Okay, first of all, you have to consider the metro uh, employees are massively, I mean, massively uh, followers of uh, one of uh, the most radical trade union in France, CGT. So they have always been very well organized. And when there is a strike, I mean, usually it's it's very well followed. So that's one of the reasons. whether this will escalate, it, it will also depend, of course, of uh, Emmanuel Macron. But he learned something from the Gilets Jaunes crisis, which is you cannot come with idea uh, of reforms and then try to impose them to the people. So he understood he would have to go through long talks and negotiation and meetings. And this is the way he's presenting uh, uh, this uh, reform uh, uh, of pension right now, like saying we will discuss, we will talk. So okay, this is a kind of a good semence, like you would say in a war, like the first shot. Uh, but then let's see if he managed to to uh, to make his way uh, through all uh, the reluctance because uh, reform uh, of pension is always been a very, very uh, tricky subject in France. People don't just don't want to, to lose their benefits. But is that all that it's about? Is there a deeper cultural war at play here? Is it about more than pensions? Yes, you can consider is that a cultural war reform uh, against uh, people who don't want to, to again, uh, to change. This, this is the whole problem with Macron since the beginning. He has been elected because he said he would make reforms. Uh, but now, when the reforms are coming, it's always a bit painful for for people. Uh, so cultural war, yeah, I mean, it, he, he managed still to, to pass labor laws. So slowly, slowly, there is something that, that's uh, evolving in France. A, a war or a conflict, you, you can call it uh, uh, like you want, but uh, it seems it, it will have less conflictual uh, uh, aspects now, like because, again, uh, Macron will try to navigate and negotiate it through. Uh, Florence was talking earlier about the French view of Brexit and I wonder about the the British view of of France (laughs) and strikes because it is something... It's a mess, it's a Brexit. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, just before I come to that point, I will say, I remember going to... I was on a trip to Paris with the London Mayor, Sadiq Khan, and we went to Emmanuel Macron's office in his campaign headquarters to do uh, the two leaders of meeting, having discussion. And one of my things is, the second you're in a politician's office, you scope the room and see what books they're reading and on his bookshelf it was full of all of the new labor autobiographies and books peter mandelson's was there tony blair's was there you know and and uh, you know i remember talking to someone in the campaign team he's like oh yes he's obsessed with you know how new labor kind of came about in the in the 90s but i think the lesson i mean you know he is sometimes a bit of an anglophile described as i mean look at the way that the conservative party here dealt with unions not just you know in the 1980s crushing them but 
Jeremy Hunt, uh, our former health secretary and former foreign secretary, you know, he took apart the BMA, the British Medical Association Union, when it came to renegotiating junior doctors' contracts. And, you know, the lesson from from Britain when dealing with these unions, which I, I wonder if Emmanuel Macron will kind of pick up on, is that, like, you divide people, like you, you, you make it an intergenerational thing. Because junior doctors, it sounds like, oh, it's young people demanding more money. It's not that's up to, you know, a 35 year old doctor basically in this country. Mm-hmm. But it very much made it like, oh, these demanding kids, it was the intergenerational divide. And when it comes to pensions, you know, if you want to kind of get that, you know, message through, where you say to young people, you know, oh, these baby boomers have had it so good, and they're taking from you, you can divide that way. I wonder if, you know, if he'll kind of clock onto the way of doing it, that, especially when it comes to pensions, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people have, you know, I've worked in organisations where the older staff are on a final pension scheme, but all the younger staff are on a totally different scheme that will never be of the same benefit. It is such a kind of emotive issue. And especially when, you know, in the UK, I think the pension age by the time I get to it will probably be 74 or something. <laughs> um, it is quite remarkable. But yeah, it won't I mean, be like that in France, I can tell you. No, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I think I think when it comes to strikes in front, you know, British people, you know, it's always the air traffic controllers. Kind of, well, that's the one that we kind of are most affected by. French air traffic control goes down and so that causes problems here. Yeah. Um, and I think there is a view that the that the that France has a lot more strikes. But also, I think in Britain, we all kind of raise our eyes at the idea of strikes and get annoyed. Whereas in France, there still seems to be strong public support for, you know, that kind of action. Yeah, it, it has always been considered as a way of make, doing politics, like yeah. to go on strike and to demonstrate, which is not very British. I mean. mm. Now, interestingly enough, we were uh, just before you arrived, Florence, Vinny and I were looking at Le Monde and neither of us are fluent in French although you're pretty good, aren't you, Vinny? We couldn't see much um, coverage of the strikes in Le Mans. Uh, So I'd like to have a look at the newspapers now, and I don't think we even need a break, as long as listeners don't mind if they can hear us sipping our coffees (laughs) and chewing slightly on our buns. (laughs) Um, Let's start and have a look look at these papers. As I say, a little bit later on in the programme, we'll be crossing to Zurich, where our editor-in-chief, Tyler Brule, is standing by. He's going to be chatting to Juliet Lindley, who's a journalist and a former Vatican correspondent for EWTN, and they're going to be looking at some more of the European papers. But just to focus first on Le Mans and uh, the coverage of the strikes, where is it, or is our French just not good enough? It's on the front page, George. <laughs> OK, there we like, go, that's but, about it. <laughs> but no, you won't see the word strike. Uh, ah, there, that's why. <laughs> Because we are not uh, especially uh, proud of it. No, no. Um, because uh, it's, it says la bataille. I mean, the, the fight uh, over special regimes. So uh, in, in the it's not even the word pensions. I didn't have a chance. <laughs> no, 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 that no, pension, one. pension, pension, pension. So be- why? Because one of the problems, as we said, like there is this intergeneration uh, question. But in France, it's that you have more than forty different uh, uh, kind of uh, pension uh, uh, regimes. And that's what Macron wants to change. You know, for example, like these drivers in a RATP in, in the metro in Paris, they could uh, retire when they are like 55, which normally the average age would be 63. Why? Because years and years ago, like it was considered really uh, maybe with uh, less uh, non-automatic uh, uh, machines, you know, before all this technological improvement, it was considered as really a hard work. Uh, it's the same for uh, the train, the train drivers. They can retire very early. Uh, but now, with all this progress in technology, etc., it's not as hard to be a train driver as 20 years ago, but still they have the same benefits and advantages. This is one of the examples. There are many of them. So this is what is at the heart of the 
of uh, the reform now. I mean, some people will lose in it more than others because when you have 42 different kind of of, uh, of uh, pension plan, then uh, it's uh, that's that's what it's about. So that's how Le Monde phrases it: the mm. fight over special regimes. You know, if if you don't know what regime special is, it's it's a bit tricky. <laughs> There we go. <laughs> Plus, a one-day strike is not that big for France. Vinnie, what have you uh, what have you been unearthing in the papers? Of course, David Cameron is everywhere. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, there's two stories I want to pick out. But first is uh, David Cameron. I mean, the book uh, comes out this week for the record. Uh, he only got a th- 800, I mean, say only, but he only got an 800,000 pound advance for this compared to Tony Blair, who got over 4 million. And I think it's because David Cameron, you know, maybe didn't have the same international profile. Um, but the book's been much delayed. Um, it's been a source of a lot of jokes because anytime something big, something happens in Brexit, you just think, well, David Cameron's probably having to rewrite whole sections of this now. <laughs> uh, but he has tactically timed it, I suppose, to make a big impact in party conference season, which these books always tend to come out now, uh, and also to really go after Boris Johnson and Michael Gove. I mean, you know, he talks about um, Michael Gove uh, and said, I don't know if I can say one of these words on there, but I'll try. I sent a text uh, to Michael. I divide the world into team players and... Um, a bad word beginning with W. Uh, you've always been a team player. Please don't become a... Uh, and I think, you know, it, I think he he's pretty much saying that, you know, he, he doesn't trust him. And these people were very close friends. Their wives are friends. Their kids went to friends, same school. They were godparent to each other's childs. And he really thinks that Boris Johnson, Michael Gove and Priti Patel, who apparently in one of the interviews, when her name is mentioned, he simply rolls his eyes quite dramatically on her name. Um, he thinks that they left their responsibility uh, at the door, that they were lying about things. Uh, he's really kind of going to town on Brexit. And he says that he uh, is sorry. Uh, he regrets what happened and how it's torn up his country. Uh, but he says he still thinks that he needed to call the referendum, uh, that that was the right thing to have done because of the way that he says after the EU had changed after the Greek crisis. Uh, and there's, you know, it's, it's interesting. So he, you know, and he made this decision uh, with Michael Haig, he, uh, with William Haig, sorry. Uh, it's just funny, you know, the small detail in a pizza place in Chicago O'Hare Airport. He told him, I've made up my mind, I'm going to do this. And you just think it's just, he really, I think he got complacent after he won the AV referendum. Uh, because no one really could get that. He won the Scottish referendum because Labour delivered that victory, not the Conservatives. He was told to stay out of Scotland. And I think he thought, oh, I can do this. But he he didn't factor in, and I think this is part of it, he didn't factor in how annoyed people were with the austerity policy, which he still defends. And I don't think he could read properly Jeremy Corbyn because Jeremy Corbyn didn't properly campaign, and that's what really did it in for him yeah, in the end. Yeah. Now, you were talking about eye-rolling, and there was quite a lot of that going on from Florence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I must say, I'm appalled to see that he's still thinking it was a good idea to make this referendum. I, I, I cannot understand that. I mean, the, he has the proof under the eyes that it was not a good idea. That this country, that his party especially, was bitterly divided between pro and anti-European. Yes, it's a fact. So, But what was the good of, of trying to have a, a definitive answer to a question that has no answer, mm. you know? And also doing this it on the simple majority. Was so, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I, like I, I must say, and uh, I, f- I find it like quite uh, amazing that after such a failure uh, in statesmanship, uh, he's now writing a book. Okay, good. Uh, every politician does that. And trumpeting about like uh, how he has been like uh, uh, cheated maybe by Boris the other, etc. I mean, 
as if he was kind of somehow a victim and if it could have been played better, uh, if everybody around would have played the game differently. But this is what you are supposed to estimate when you're a leader, how the people will react, who you can rely on when you're campaigning. So now to say, oh, my God, my, my good friend Michael uh, d didn't take my side. Yes. So what you expect? I mean, it's politics. Now so, I'm like, ironic. And Boris Johnson know that of his brother <laughs> Joe, too. Like it's not family, uh, friends, whatever. It's about politics. We've got a minute and a half left and I'm really hoping one of you will come up with something rather uplifting from the papers. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I was going to go on to a quick story about how uh, Fashion Week in London has kicked off to a bad start here because there have been protests by both Peter, which is kind of normal, uh, but also by uh, climate, uh, Extinction Rebellion. They say the fashion industry is incredibly well, uh, wasteful. Is that uplifting? Uplifting? <laughs> Uh, maybe not. I'm, 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 I'm flick, flick through. Fashion, fashion. No, no, yeah. there is like this uh, new fashion, like dresses made with nettles, and this is supported by Prince Charles. I found it like this is the funny side of uh, Fashion Week. It's a uh, defile uh, with uh, nettle dresses. But I mean, it is interesting, isn't it, that suddenly the fashion industry has been targeted for the fact that it is very environmentally unfriendly. They are definitely making lots of efforts. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, one funny one then to, to finish us off. Stephen McGovern, who is a BBC political uh, economic correspondent, was doing a corporate event yesterday in which uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson was speaking. And as he left the stage, she uh, got up and said, uh, um, uh, I'm proud to say I'm a girly swat, something that apparently <laughs> Boris Johnson called David Cameron. And, she, and then she went on to say... And I'm pretty sure I'll be in my job longer than he will be. <laughs> so that is in the papers this morning, is having to apologise for that. It is a remarkable that there's already questions, you know, going to Boris Johnson at these press conferences about, you know, will he will he resign? Will he stand down? It's he's having quite a he's in for a, a tricky week between the Cameron book and the Supreme Court case. Uh, I think it's going to be another tough week. Absolutely. Listen, thank you very much to both of you. Uh, so my guests today were Vincent McAvinney and Florence Biederman. Now, coming up in the next few minutes, we'll be connecting to our Zurich Bureau, where we'll be speaking to our editor-in-chief, Tyler Brule, and the journalist, uh, Juliet Lindley. We'll be having a look uh, at some of the papers coming out of Europe. But that's all uh, for this programme for today. Our supervising producer is Ben Ryland. Our researcher was Naomi Potter. And our studio manager was Nora. A whole. That's your weekend view. Do stay with us. <laughs>